Welcome to the C3 Church Noosa podcast. Stay tuned for this week's message. Church, take your seats. I was just as I was singing that song, I was thinking um, back um, just over 16 years ago when I walked out of the police academy and um, with after seven months of training and I rocked up to Caboolture Police Station 2pm for a 2pm shift on a Friday afternoon. I don't know why they put first years straight out of the academy, 2 to 10 on a Friday afternoon at Caboolture. But what a nightmare. I came home from that shift and I actually, it was about six months later, I actually felt like I had come up and taken a breath. The journey was insane. It was just from the, from the moment I, I was standing there, all gunned up, ready to go, and, then, and my field training officer come running out and goes, are you Walsh? And I went, yep, he said, with me, and he's running as we go off to a big fight. And um, I went home that day and I said to Ainsley, the academy did not prepare me for that. And uh, sometimes that's life, isn't it? You know what I mean? So, but the good thing is, it's amazing when training kicks in. And as Amanda was saying today, we come here to train. Today is a training day. And what it does, training does, is it helps us to navigate the journey of life. And it's that training that is, uh, that uh, you don't realise you have it until you need it. You just do not know how good you are as a police officer fighting until you actually have to fight. And then you realise you're pretty good at it, actually. And... Uh, and um, um, I, th- I think there's only once that I've lost. Yeah, well, he got away, so that's a loss. <laughs> but he was a bit slippery. As in, we OC sprayed him, so he was now covered in oil. So it was like, it was like fighting a greasy pig. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, I'm actually the... Oh, no. <laughs> well, you know what I mean. But he got away. But so out of 16 years, Thousands to one, I think that's a pretty good average. Yeah, there we go. But the point I'm trying to say is today's a training day. And what we're going to look at today is anger management. The struggle is real. Anger management. We all, now, don't put your hands up, but who has not got angry in their life? Okay, now, yeah. <laughs> and so the title of my message today is What You're Looking At. Because I get this. For 16 years, pretty much, I get this, what are you looking at? I'm not sure. What am I looking at? Uh, Is my normal response. But we're going to quickly turn to Luke chapter 15. We're going to quickly read just one of my favourite parables. I think it's titled wrong. It's called the, uh, by most people, the prodigal son. But I don't believe it's actually about the prodigal son. I think the prodigal son is irrelevant to the story, and I'll explain my reasoning for that shortly. I believe it's the parable of the compassionate father or it's the parable of the lost sons, okay, not the prodigal son. So we read in chapter 15, verse 11, and we're just going to quickly whiz through the whole lot and then we're going to have a quick chat about it. And he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger, the younger of them came to his father and his father gave, he said, father, give me your, my share of my property that is coming to me and he divided the property between them So not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property with reckless living. And then when he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was uh, longing to be fed from the the pods that uh, that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. And then it came to him, he said, how many of my father's hired servants 
have more than enough, to, uh, enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will rise up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And then he rose and came to his father and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, bring quickly a best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. Bring out the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this, is my son, for this my son was dead, is alive again, and he was lost but is found. And we're about to celebrate. Now the older son came out of the field, and when he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he came, he, he came to one of the servants and asked, what have these things meant? And he said to him, your, fa- your brother has come, and the father has killed the fatted calf, uh, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And the father came out and entreated him, and he, but he answered his father, Look, for these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, you have de- uh, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, that you have killed the fatted calf. And he said to his son, You are always with me, and all that was mine was yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother is, was dead, is alive, was lost, but now found. The interesting thing about this um, parable is that uh, when the younger son walked up to his father and said, give me my, what is due to me, because he had two sons, the first son would get always a double portion because he was the oldest. So that meant that the younger son was entitled to one third of the father's estate. Now, these guys were usually landowners. And to, just to get you to understand the scenario behind here, is he would have been a landowner, a fairly rich landowner, and he would have had a village uh, next to, because when we see this picture, for many years I saw this picture of just a family house on a farm. But in actual fact, it would have been a village that where the hired servants all lived, and then there would have been the, the property or the house in which the father lived or, and, the, and the family lived. And they would have worked the property, and the property could have been anything to say, let, let's just pick a figure, 300 acres. And they, they, they had sheep, they had cows, they had whatever. Um, but there was a village there. And so what would have happened is the father would have had to sell off 100 of those acres in order to give the son what the son was entitled to. Because the son didn't want to just inherit a piece of land, he wanted the cash. So he would have had to liquidate one-third of his wealth. So that means that his ongoing effect of that would have been the effect on the hired servants. Because you think about it, do you need as many hired servants now because you've got one third less of the property? You probably go, don't need as many people. So the ramifications of this one selfish boy is that now it affected a whole community. Not just the dad, not just the son, but the hired servants and the people in that village. And in that village would have been people who didn't work for the father, but they would have been the storekeepers, the, you know, the, you know, the goat herders, um, leather maker or whatever, uh, there would have been a number of people. But what we're going to look at is, when we look at anger, anger is one of those things that you can manage, 
But if you understand where anger comes from, then you just don't get angry. And it's often, it's what we look at. It's how we look at something. And it's how we take it in and how we perceive it in us will determine our anger. And anger usually comes from a source, and I find it's probably uh, two things, two main things, which is our selfishness, our pride, and the third one is our hurt. So those three things are usually what drives our anger. Our selfishness, or I say our wants and desires, our, our pride, and our hurts. And our hurts can be broken into past hurts or fears. So you can put names, whatever you want to it, but that's usually where the source of anger comes from. So what we look at here is I'm going to look at the two the people in this story, which is the father and the older brother, on how they saw things, and also the villagers is what we're going to look at. So the father, we don't know how long he was away for, because he, he would have been fairly wealthy and he would have been having a great time. He wouldn't spend all his money. He was, you don't think the father knew what he was doing? The father would have heard reports, oh, that way went son of yours. Well, what he's doing now down in Brizzy? You know, he's off with the prostitutes, he's, he's, having, he's on drugs now, he's an alcoholic, he's, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he's now feeding pigs. The thing about feeding pigs for the Jewish community was, a, was a, like that was the lowest you could slide to was feeding pigs. Because pigs were an unclean animal. And for you, feeding pigs meant that you were now at the bottom of your food chain. But the father, it says here in verse 20, uh, 20, it says, and he arose and came to his father. Yet when he was a long way off, the father saw him and had compassion. I often think about that. Do you think the father just got compassion then? Do you think the father, was the father bitter and twisted and then saw him and then compassion fell? You know what I mean? I think you would have found that the father, he gave his son what he asked for. Because what he was saying to the son was, I wish you were dead so I could have my money. That's what he was really saying when he left. I wish you were dead. You are worthless to me, alive, because you are holding me back. That's what he was really saying to his father. And I don't know about you fathers, but that would be pretty, pretty sad, actually. Um, but then we see from the Amplified, he got up and came to his father and while he was still a long way off, his father saw with him and he moved with pity and tenderness and he ran and embraced him and kissed him fervently. We see here the father was, how he saw his son was not, did not rise anger within his heart. The brother, on the other hand, obviously what we read is that the whole time he was stewing over the fact that now this empire that his father had created and inherited had been gutted. It was now people who were on the breadline that couldn't be employed anymore. He saw the ramifications of, a, of an evil son who was, who was now dead to him. He didn't want to have anything to do with him. And bitterness and anger grew within him and continued to grow within him. But the interesting thing here is, how did the father see the son? He saw him in his swine herder's clothes because he didn't have money to change his clothes. So he would have been dressed as a swine herder. He would have had um, pig feces all over him. You know what I mean? He had no shoes on, so he would have been walking in the, in the pigsty. Uh, he saw the filth on his hands and his feet. He saw his rags. He saw his, his repentant heart. 
He saw where he had been. He saw who he was. But more importantly, he saw who he could be. And the father saw him and seeing him afar off, ran. Ran. He could see his past, he could see his present, but more importantly, he could see his future. When he was away, a far away, he, he leaped. There was no anger towards his son. There was nothing but pity for the poor boy. Regardless of the fact that he had hurt his son so severely, had hurt the community so severely, had offended, and could you imagine the father walking down into the village as the lord of the manor, seeing what his son had actually done to him. So the interesting thing here is we see the father then runs. In the first century, once you got to 30, you didn't run because it was not cool. You, you had a dignified walk, right? Because running was seen as a young man's thing. That was somebody who was in haste. That was somebody who did not have it together. That was somebody who was not in control. Men over 30 did not run. So the question is, so the question is, why did he run? Why did he run? You actually have a look at the culture of uh, the Jewish culture back in the Middle Eastern times, Middle Eastern times. What they would do is, um, sorry, before I get to that, the father, the father running, he, would have, he had his long dress on because they wore dresses back then. Problem with running is you would trip over. So he would have had to drag his dress up, right? And he would have had to show his legs, which was bringing back in those days shame upon yourself. And he would have run from his house through the village in front of all the people he's the Lord of to his son as an act of almost shame. What the hell is going on here? Look at that. That's going to make front page of tomorrow's mag. You know what I mean? But the reason for it is that the Jewish had a culture that when a Jewish son lost his inheritance amongst the Gentiles and he returned home, they would perform a ceremony, and I'm not going to even pronounce it, but it's K-E-Z-A-Z-A-H, for those writing it down, K-E-Z-A-Z-A-H. And what they would do as a community is they would walk out, greet the son, they would grab a pot, they would smash it on the ground, they would all turn their back and walk back into the village and that person was cut off for eternity. It was an act that, 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 that basically meant it was in concrete, it was over, there was no reconciliation. You were cut off. The father knew that that's what the villagers would do. So he had to run. Had to run to greet his son. Because if he got to, the son had got to the village first, they would have cut him off on behalf of the father, but also because of their anger and what he had caused and cost them. He got to the son before the villagers could get to the son. His next request was get him a coat, get him a ring, get him shoes. These were symbols of authority, position and power. The robe dignified you with your position. The ring was your power. Remember the old signet ring was the, back in the days was your signature. It was the thing that you would stamp on a letter. It was the thing that you, if someone saw that ring, 
you had power. You had the authority of the person who gave you the ring. And the feet was your position. So here we see the father wanted to bring him through the village, not wearing his swine clothes, not wearing his dirty feet. He wanted him dressed appropriately and dignified as he walked him and paraded him through the town, straight back to the house, everybody in for a party. What sort of statement does that make for the father? A compassionate father who not only saw that, who had a right to be angry and a right to cut off, who knew that the villagers had a right to cut him off as well, decided, the, uh, decided that he would um, restore him. And you see here in verse 20, it says, and he kissed him much. We see earnestly. See, okay, so what does the kissing mean? Much kissing means much love. It means much forgiveness. It means full restoration. You know, you know when your wife's angry at you, because you'll get the, you know what I mean? Well, that's how it works, isn't it? You know, you go, you go give, give mum a hug, and mum goes, um, you know, and you go, okay, she's ticked. <laughs> <You know? clears throat> Whereas, you know where somebody is in your world by the passion of their kissing, okay? There's exceedingly joy. The many kisses meant overflowing comfort, strong reassurance, because it wasn't just, here's a coat, here's a ring, here's some shoes. It was evident from the tears of the father and the kissing of the father that these gifts, this re-restoration was not just materialistic and of appearance, but was heartfelt, and that was a fundamental difference. So the robes, the rings, and the shoe. The father saw, he ran, and he kissed. And why did he do that? Why is it that the son, the other son, his brother, and you notice he says, not my brother, he says, your son. He doesn't call him a brother, he's disowned him. He discounts him, he removes him. If you, know, if you had gone in and asked Jesus a little bit more of a question when he read this one out, you would say, did he get another inheritance? Did, he, uh, did, the, son have to, did the first son have to give a third of what he was left with? Um, who knows what the answer to that was, but obviously the brother was full of anger. Why was he full of anger? Because he was hurt. He saw the hurt of what the brother had caused. He also probably had pride when he says, I have not sinned against you, Father. I have not done anything wrong, yet you've done nothing for me. Yet this thing turns up and you just reinstate him automatically. How's that work? <coughs> How do we manage anger? And I think it comes down to what you look at. The father looked at the son and saw his flesh and blood, not the errors of his ways. He saw him with potential and capability. He saw him as something that could be something of the future. Yes, he had made mistakes, but he could be, that could be done away with. Whereas the brother saw him as somebody who could never be forgiven. When we see something a particular way, we're going to react as a consequence to that way. So what I'm going to look at now is a tool that may help you to understand how you 
individually, and look, I can tell you, <clears throat> third quarter yesterday, watching Collingwood play the Giants, anger, anger rose up. My son almost was going to storm out and said, because it was one of, and, and Brisbane Lions supporters will know exactly how I'm feeling today from last week, a dirty team who are loved by the umpires. And it is, it was one of the most disgraceful displays of umpiring I've ever seen that I even, while the game was on, wrote to the AFL <laughs> and said there should be a match review for umpires who are blatantly biased, but dirty players. Mum, uh, Ainsley said I couldn't call them what I call them, but, but it, it's like um, grubby. <laughs> they were grubby players and, and anger rose up because if you know my second religion is AFL and, um, uh, and, and Collingwood is my passion and um, so yes anger does rise up doesn't it and, and it was because um, I felt hurt yesterday I really deep down hurt and wounded <clears throat> but Jesus gives us a way in which we can learn to actually develop a method to manage anger. And it's in Matthew 5, and it's called the Beatitudes. And we may not look, have seen the Beatitudes this way, but I thought I'd just share it today. Uh, St. Gregory in, in um, 380 AD described the Beatitudes this way. They are the possessions of all things held to be good, for which nothing is absent, that a good desire may want. Perhaps the meaning of the Beatitudes may become clearer for us if we compare it to the opposite. For the opposite of Beatitude is misery. Misery means being afflicted unwillingly with painful suffering. Because we've got a choice. We can live in our pain, our fear, our uh, unhealthy desires. Because that's usually where anger comes from. Because we're not getting it not getting what we want. It's not happening. In verse um, 2, we read, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, when we look at that poor in spirit, the problem that we have with that is, is that most people think that means uh, low in spirit or we're deficient of spirit. The problem with the English, when you translate it from the Greek, is that we lose a lot of meanings. Like we see the word love... But in the Greek, there's like five different words for love. Okay, so you, is it agape love? Is it filio love? Is it erotic love? Is it what type of love is it? We don't get that when we read the Bible. So sometimes we need to just delve a little bit deeper and get an understanding of what is the author really saying in Matthew. And what he was saying here was, blessed are those who are humbly dependent on God. Okay, that's what he was really saying. So if I was rewriting the Bible, that's how I would say, blessed are those who are humbly dependent on God, being humble. Some people have mistaken this to mean poverty and take vows of poverty. But Jesus is rather saying, be humbly dependent on God. Realise of your own spiritual inadequacies and have a dependence on his grace. What I'm going to say today is I don't believe the beatitude is eight things. I believe it's eight steps. Because you can't get to step two unless you are humbly dependent on God. 
Because the first, next step two, when we get to step two, which is blessed are those who mourn. And again, that's, you know, that's not going flogging yourself you know, and crying and weeping and whatever. What he's really saying here is mourn for those things which make God cry. That's what it says. That's what it really means. Blessed are those who mourn. It's about seeking the holiness of God and understanding that there's gaps in our world that we should be mourning for and we should stand for. But we can't do that unless we're first humbly dependent on God, which is step one. So the first step to managing anger is become humbly dependent on God. That's why I come to church on Sunday. That's why we read. That's why we do this in the podcast. Like Amanda said, that's why we do all those things, because that's the training to understand. Because I can tell you, when crisis hits, what is your default? Are you humbly dependent on God? I remember when Madison shut the door on Brody's finger and crushed his little finger. I was extremely humbly dependent on God because it was pretty easy for me because that's all I had left. You know what I mean? Like it was severely broken. And it looked like it, was, it crushed his, um, what do you call it, um, uh, growth in the, uh, bed, which meant that he would have had this little tiny finger for the rest of his life. There was only, I, I had no answer. So I went straight to step one, which is be humbly dependent on God. Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus is saying, it's not about making us happy. I'll, I'll, I'll break this to you. Jesus is not really concerned about your happiness. Right? <laughs> Jesus is really concerned about your capacity. Okay? He wants your joy. See, to me, happiness is what happens to us. Joy is what comes from within us. So when you are humbly dependent on God, the joy of your salvation flows up. So therefore, from your joy, not your happiness, because happiness is something that just happens, you know, we start to see what God wants us to see. And, and, and Tommy Barnett preached a message years ago down at City Point. I'll never forget it. He said... Find a need and fill it. That's the Christian answer. Simple as that. Find a need and fill it. If you want to know what your destiny is, find a need and fill it. Because if you're in step two, you will have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart willing to respond to what God is wanting you to see. Now, I've told you before, I never saw an X-Trail until I bought an X-Trail car, right? And then I see them everywhere. Why is that? It's because my eyes were open to something that I had not seen before. You need an X-Trail moment in God. You need to see what is the unseen. You need to see what God has got for you, but he's going, it's right in front of you. You're going, whoa, can't see the wood for the trees. One of the things about the army is that that's one of the things they teach is uh, how you see things. Because when someone stands still and they're all cammed up, pretty hard to see them but as soon as they move or there's a silhouette there's a shine there's a change in the light then the person is revealed Jesus wants to reveal to us but we must be blessed are those who mourn and seek after his righteousness mourn is in a sense as Jesus uses here is to grieve over one's shallowness and shortcomings grieve for your repentance for the lost world and the sinful world. Once you've got that, and you can start to see the things that God wants to reveal, blessed are the meek. 
Now, that's not the weak. Meek is not weak. So we've, mixed, we've missed that one, messed up, you know, Christians. Turn the other cheek. Yep, 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 yep. No, it's not about that at all. It's blessed are the meek, or another word is blessed are the teachable. Meekness is a quality that characterizes every Christian. It doesn't mean weak or pushover. It means teachable. It means moldable. <clears throat> it means self-control, considering others before yourself. Being meek is the opposite to man who is proud, arrogant, critical, boastful, rude, selfish, and power-seeking. This is the one that will start to see your anger diminish. It's because here you're teachable, because you're going to break down your pride. That's your selfish desires. You're going to, you will work through your hurt and your fears. Because your fears go when you're humbly dependent on God. Your hurts go when you mourn for that which needs to be mourned. And it's here that your pride goes because you're now teachable. And once you're teachable, you'll go to number four, which is blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Hunger after God's will, God's plan. You know, some people go, oh, I really don't want to do that because, you know, I really, it really makes me happy. One of the worst things, you go up to Monville, ah, oh, frustrates me, those shops. You go up there and it's like, so, no, no offence if anyone's from Monville, but do whatever makes you happy. What, who came up with that concept? Do whatever makes you happy. You know what I mean? That's an open book. Because there's a lot of things that make some weird people happy that are totally inappropriate for our world. But do whatever makes you feel happy. No, it's what builds your joy. Do whatever builds your joy. And see, here we see that it says, you will hunger after God's will. The promise for those who are meek is that you will be filled. True happiness is the hunger for God, hunger for holiness. I can tell you now, like, being a Christian is easy when you're a police officer. Because we live by so many codes that you guys don't even live by. You know, I, I um, if... Um, I won't pick a brand, just a person, just a person over here, because I didn't want to, you know. They get caught for drink driving, okay? They get caught for drink driving. I get caught for drink driving. Now, my driving history is exceptional, right? Only because, no, no, no. Uh, but, so we go to court together, okay? And we're both the same, same reading, same circumstances, same history. Who's going to fare worse in court? Correct. So the magistrate's going to go, you're a police officer, you should know better. Whack. Not only then do I get a whack there, I walk into the police station and then they say, you now don't have a job. I then walk into my army reserve and they go, and you don't have a job. So it's a triple whammy for the one offence. Is that fair? The question is, is that fair? The question is, with great power comes great responsibility. Right? So my argument is, when you have the power of the living God pouring through your veins, 
with great power comes great responsibility. And this is where this hunger for righteousness comes. The hunger, not just come here, get my fill and walk out like a fat, happy Christian, but it's working out, what is it that you want me to do? Because you know what I, well, you've actually, when you get to step four, you know what you've got to do because in step two, you've already worked that out because you're seeing the things that God has got for you to fill the gap that, of that need that needs to be met. So by this stage, you're going, I want to be. And I can tell you, in 16 years, I've, you know, we, we have a thing called ethical standards. We always call it double standards, okay? But ethical standards, these guys are the police of the police, and they are brutal. But we understand the world that we live in. Jesus is not making it that hard. He allows you to fail. He allows you to mess it up. He, allow, he allows things to happen as long as you go, I want to hunger and thirst after your righteousness. I want to know that I am in the true will of God. The first four steps are about you and how you internalize things. So the first one is become humbly dependent on God. Number two is mourn or feel the need that needs to be met because God has revealed the pain of his world because he's up there and he's gone, this world is just making me cry. We are his answer. He, we are his feet. We are his hands. We are his head. We are his, his ability to fix the world. We will then, number three, be teachable and then we will seek after his righteousness. When we can achieve that, we become merciful. Blessed are the merciful. Because when we know that we're in the true will of God, that doesn't make us perfect. I'm not saying that at all. But when we live in the true will of God, when we can see a, a horrible kid who has done horrible things come back and we can just, with loving arms, put our arms around, we now step into the realm of not just fixing ourselves but now healing the world around us and that we can be merciful. The promise to the merciful is they will obtain mercy. The merciful will receive mercy in return. For one who shows mercy is totally opposite to the world's concept. I work in a police office, a police force which is about retribution. It's about punishment. It's not about, oh, I understand where you came from and the issues and all that sort of stuff. That's for court to decide. But for police, it's all arbitrary. It's all about punishment. It's all about right and wrong. It's black, it's white. But we see here, God says, those who are merciful will receive mercy. And I dare say we all need mercy. Because we're not perfect. He's not asking us to be perfect, but he's asking us to step into his will. We see here in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us of our transgressions as we forgive those who transgress against us. You know, he's saying to us, he's saying, you show mercy, you will obtain mercy. And about that scripture, it says that love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. So we see here he's calling us to love. Then, when we can be merciful, number six is, blessed are the pure of heart. We are not blessed just because of outward veneer of religion, you know, Sunday Christians, <coughs> business as usual for the rest of the week. But those that are pure of heart, those whose character and contact reflect true holiness, those who are clean with the attitude and the motive towards others who will be blessed. The thing about the world today is that people do not play fair. But it's when Christians play fair 
and do the right thing and reflect the right heart, we show our pure of heart. The opposite to that is beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing outwardly, uh, sorry, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. We are to show a pure heart, a pure heart to reflect the love that Jesus has shown us and the mercy that we've received to pour that out to the world as a beacon of light that people just go, I just do not get that. My nickname at work is the Reverend uh, and the second one is uh, the social worker. Because I'll have arrest somebody, but then I'll spend 15 minutes with them just talking about what's your next step. No, literally, what's your next step? I've, I've, as I'm putting you in the cell, I go, hey, mate, how's your day? How's your day? Well, what do you think? You just arrested me. Yeah, yeah, I know, it's been a bad day, but <laughs> what are you going to do next? What are you going to do next? What do you mean? Well, do you want this to be on your headstone when you die? wife beater, thief, or whatever it is? What are you going to do different next time that you didn't do this time? Because, you know, this is the 47th time. You know, sometimes, you know, it's like that. But you go, what are you going to do different? What, what do you mean? Hey, look, I can get you connected with some referral agencies that if you go and speak to them, they will give you the tools necessary to... And I said, look, and if you don't like them, I said, you can always try... Ch- I know churches like... But you never know, they're a bunch of good people who want to help people. Just go in there, broken as you are, but they just want to help you. Or, you know, this, this group or that group. But if you're going to continue doing the same thing you're doing now, it's like, you know, definition of an idiot, you know, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. And they go, in the end, they shake your hand, they thank you. It's amazing that the number of people who, who respond that way. Just because you show them kindness... Blessed are those who are pure of heart. Because what is the motive? My motive is to do my job, which is arrest them. That's my work motive. <coughs> but my inward motive is to see... You won't ever put anything on my tombstone. I hope I live by this. Is He just wanted people to live better lives. Because I think that's my motive. That people live better lives. And in brackets, in Christ. Uh, <laughs> but not always achieved. <laughs> you know what I mean? But that's obviously, but that's my motive. So therefore my motive, if, that's, if people can live better lives, then that's the frame or the lens in which I see their offence or their issue, is I see it through the lens of how can they live a better life? Because it's not my job to punish, that's the court. My job is just to arrest. The next one is blessed are the peacemakers. The idea of a peacemaker is the opposite to being contentious and argumentative. There is peace that surpasses all understanding. This peace is and God is upon you that you will receive it. True peace does not come from our own strength. The peace that surpasses all understanding. A Christian is not one who makes peace in a local assembly, sorry, is the one who makes peace in his local assembly even with his enemies. I always find that a challenge. How can you get somebody who barracks for Brisbane to barrack for Collingwood? You know, how can you convert, you know? But, you know, um, I'll, I'll give it a go. Follow peace. And this is the thing that it says in Hebrews 12. It says, follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see God. Think about that. Follow peace with all men. 
We should be peacemakers. And then the last one is we will know that we've arrived when we can do the last one. Blessed are those for which they are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Because I don't believe you can take persecution unless you are convicted. That you know who you are, who you are in, and where you are headed, and what lens you see it. Because if you're full of pride, hurt, or fear, you're going to get angry. That's the end state. You just get angry. Are you attacked by others? Are you hated uh, for the sake of righteousness? I've been investigated three times by one sergeant who's put my name in because of my faith. He doesn't believe that uh, pastors should be able to be police officers. I've had internal investigations investigate me on three separate times because he believes I shouldn't be in the job. Still treating with respect. Still... Does he frustrate me? Yes. Is he a nice person? No. But I still call him Sarge. Some say that being persecuted for righteous snake is actually being persecuted for self-righteousness. We're not talking about people here becoming martyrs because they want to, I want to be a martyr. You know, this is about the persecution for righteousness sake. Blessed are those who when men shall rival you or persecute you and shall say all manners of evil against you falsely for your name's sake, uh, for Jesus' sake, rejoice and exceeding glad for great is the reward in heaven for, the, for, for so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. We're going to get persecuted if you stand in the light and you stand as a beacon of light as the worship team comes up. What we see here is we want to be the salt of the earth. You know the interesting thing about salt is? If you don't have salt, it's foul. Food tastes foul without salt. Sorry for anyone who doesn't have salt, um, but um, I, I lather salt on because I, I think salt's great. However, have you ever had, you know, Ainsley makes really great meals. I've had to get her to stop so I could trim down a bit. But... Um, uh, but she makes really great meals. And have you ever had it where the, you know, the old salt container where the lid falls off and it goes all over? Too much salt destroys. It's the right amount of salt. And that's what we're called to be, the right amount of salt. So to know who you are is to be the right amount of seasoning to the world. It's knowing when to keep your mouth closed, knowing when to open it, knowing when to open your heart. It's knowing who you are and who you're in. So blessed are the poor in spirit, be humble. Blessed are those who mourn. Seek your destiny through the eyes of God. Get it revealed. Be teachable, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger after thirst and thirst after righteousness. Hunger for God's will in your life. That will then make you a robust, trained, professional Christian. Then you will be able to be blessed for the merciful. And you'll have forgiveness in your heart. Your first response will be forgiveness. It'll be saying sorry first. Blessed are the pure of heart. You will show genuine kindness. Blessed are the peacemakers. You'll have peace within your world. You will be known as the person who brings peace to conflict. And blessed are those who 
are full of faith and can endure persecution. We see here, for you are the light of the world in verse 14. A hill set, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but put it on a stand to give light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God the Father in heaven. You want people to say, I don't know what you're on. I don't know who you are, but I want it. Because as Francis of Assisi once said many centuries ago, preach the gospel wherever you go and where necessary, use words. What he's saying is by your action, let your faith be revealed. The Jews I've told you in the past have said, don't tell me what you believe, I'll follow you for two weeks and then I'll tell you what you believe. If you looked at your last two weeks, what would it say about your belief? And if you don't know where to start, step one is a great place. Blessed are, I've got to remember, blessed are the poor in spirit, be humbly dependent on God. Just start your prayer with God, Jesus, Holy Spirit. I do not know, I have no answer, but I'm all yours. That's as simple as it starts. That's all you need to do. I do not have an answer. The prodigal son returned saying, Father, I don't have an answer, but I'm happy to work as a hireling. I don't even want to be called son. I just want to come home. Step one is just coming home. At this time, just think about your own walk in life and who you are in life. And just think upon that for a second and ask yourself, are you humbly dependent on God? Or do you think that you have the answers through pride, hurt and fear? To Heavenly Father, we ask you to have your hand upon each one of us today as we navigate this journey of life. That these Beatitudes stand as a signpost, steps for us to embrace who you are. For it's with your blessing, Lord, with your care and your love, as a compassionate Father who runs towards us, who gives us a robe, a ring and, a, and, and sandals, and kisses us fervently, we know that we are yours and forever yours. We ask you to have your hand upon each one of us as we navigate this journey of just the anger that sometimes wells up in us and how we can navigate that so much better to reflect the true nature and love of Christ. Thanks for listening to the C3 Church Noosa podcast. For more life-changing messages, visit us online at c3noosa.org. If you've been blessed by this message, please consider partnering with us financially to see the work of God continue flourishing in and through C3 Church Noosa. God bless.